once again to In the Finest Hour, a 4K podcast about improving your skills in time of, let's say, maybe an hour or so. One would think. Yeah. Uh, I am your host, Sean Morgan, sometimes known as Abuse Puppy, and you have already heard my lovely co-host from the left. Hi. Good one, Shailen Allen. <laughs> and, of course, we have from the right, our usual evil host, Joshua Death. All of the evil. <laughs> <laughs> all of it, though? All of it. I got it all tonight. It's all mine. Mm, you're not in the Trump administration. <laughs> Dang it, he caught me. I gotcha. <laughs> I caught you out. I, I actually think that's for the battle. There's certain levels of evil you don't want to stoop to. Yeah. <laughs> right? I can't even go that low. We put a distinct limiter in it. Speaking of evil and its counterpart, we had a, a question from some of the folks that I thought would be interesting to throw at you guys. What is your most heroic moment that a unit has ever had in the game? What's your top one? Go ahead. You go first. Ooh, I've got two. Well, you're going to have to pick one of them. All right. I'll do the more recent one. So an Imperial Knight charges into a unit of Seraphim and my Warlord, who is holding a Force Halberd Grey Knight Terminator guy. Yep. Nice little Strength 5 dinky weapon. Yes. AP minus two, damage D3. Now this is important because that knight was wounded walking into this mess. It beats on some Seraphim. Pretty ineffectual, all things considered. It didn't kill as many of them as he'd have liked. The warlord who he ignored proceeds to hit him five times, wound him four times, he'll fail all his saves, take 14 damage, and die. Mm-hmm. Exploding, killing a Seraphim and doing no damage to the warlord because of Acurus. Mm-hmm. That, that was the most heroic moment there ever. Soloing a knight is probably a pretty good job for a, like, 130-point character. It was 165 at the time, but sure. Yeah, he's not 165 no more. He One could argue that he never should have been 165. <laughs> I do agree with this. Hey, you know, Josh. How about you? Mine actually harkens back a number of number of days to uh, the good old second edition. Ooh. Back in the day when characters would have multiple saves. Yup. One of the scariest individuals of that age, and he's becoming so again, was Abaddon the Despoiler. And back in those days, Abaddon had multiple saves. So one of his first saves he got was the old Terminator save, which is actually done on two dice. Yeah. And you had to roll a three or better. It was literally a three plus on two dice. So the only way you failed was with snake eyes. Mm -hmm. But in those days, just like now, your armor save could be modified by the strength of the weapon. So first he had to fail the two dice save on the Terminator save. Then he had a just straight up four plus on a single die to ignore the damage. And then if he failed that one... Then he had a leadership test, and if he failed the leadership test, he actually took the damage. And so at this point, you have to realize you'd have to roll snake eyes on two dice, roll a one through three, and then fail a leadership test, and then he would take one wound, of which he had eight. Okay. Yeah, Abaddon would literally, I've, I've watched him in back in second edition, I've watched him walk through literally thousands of points of armies on his own and just not care. Mm -hmm. Well, there was one particular example where... Abaddon had a unit of Terminators behind him. He just landed on the other side of this hill, and there was ten guardsmen holding this hill. And these Abaddon and Black Legion Terminators drop in right in front of him, just start gunning down, and they charge in, and they just start pounding on him. And this Imperial Guardsman sergeant, just a sergeant, mm -hmm. pulls out a LAS pistol, and he's like, I could use it on me, or I could use it on you. I'm too stupid to use it on me. <laughs> Probably what I should have done. So I'm going to shoot Abaddon. 
So this little sergeant pulls out his blast pistol, shoots Abaddon, he rolls, he hits, he wounds, and we're like, okay, whatever, just make your saves. He rolls, rolls snake eyes. I'm like, uh-oh, pointing at him, laughing, I'm like, ah, oh, you're gonna do this, you're gonna fail. He rolls, rolls a two, takes the wound, I'm like, okay, you gotta fail a leadership test now. He rolls, fails a leadership test. Yeah. And at this point, this Imperial Guard sergeant <laughs> just did what I had failed to do to Abaddon for like the last 14 games of Warhammer with my entire army. <laughs> <laughs> and so I literally, not even joking, I literally was like, I win. And he and we, he started chuckling on it, and I started packing up my models. And he looks at me funny, and he's like, you weren't joking. I'm like, no, no, there's literally nothing else can happen in this game that matters. I win. <laughs> I just wounded Abaddon with a lasgun sergeant. I'm good. There's no way this can go worse. <laughs> so I packed up my models and we went and got a drink. I won. <laughs> In my mind, I chalked that entire game up to a victory because that that sergeant just wounded Abaddon with a las gun. <laughs> there you go. I have I have a somewhat similar uh, story of Imperial Guard victory, uh, although it was an actual re- win rather than just a moral victory. Oh. Uh, so I was playing Apocalypse back in fifth edition. Oh, good times. This story. And I had a squad of, they were modeled as guardsmen, they were technically Inquisitional Acolytes. But, you know, Inquisitional Acolytes who were a bunch of uh, upgraded Kadishans. Yes. Sitting in the middle of the field, nowhere near anything, it is the last turn of the game. Mm-hmm. And the Imperial players are on the bottom of the turn, so all the Xenos and Chaos get to go first. And they are, is, it's seven guardsmen sitting out in the open. Mm-hmm. Which is not a safe place to be in 5th edition or in Apocalypse. No, not at all. Waddling on up comes a Turvagon, which back then were just the bee's knees. One of the best units in the Codex. Mm-hmm. Um, Turvagon decides that it is going to charge into those guardsmen and give them a bad time. So she uh, gets up close enough, shoots her little, like, template spore thing onto them, and kills four of them. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, oof. All right, well, I got three left, and she's got four attacks, and I'm going to be making a morale check and probably dying. And Turvagon charges into them, and Turvagons are initiative one, which means they strike absolute last back in that edition. Mm-hmm. So three guardsmen swing into the Turvagon, who, as in Shaylin's story, was wounded. Mm-hmm. This is relevant, because she had taken some damage and was down to three wounds remaining. Mm-hmm. Three guardsmen hitting on fours. All hits. Wounding on sixes. All wounds. <laughs> but she's got a three-up save. Hmm. And she fails all three of them. Yes. But it doesn't end there, because those guardsmen now get to consolidate, as they have won a combat. So, they consolidate towards an objective. And then it's our turn. And I move them six inches forward. But there are, like, ten grots and a war boss holding the objective. And it's, like, still... You know, just barely in charge range. But I fire my bolters, kill a bunch of grots, and they run away because, of course, they do. They're grots. Yep. And we decide to charge the war boss. <laughs> and we charge in three hits, three wounds, three failed mega armor saves. This is a two plus, people. Yes. And they then consolidate onto the objective. 
which means they have one fewer and we have one more, which pushes pushes it from a 3-2 loss to a 3-2 win. <laughs> oh. Three guardsmen killed two models a hundred times better than them and won the game. There you go. Oh, the salt had to be real. Oh, it was... We were losing our minds at the end of that game. Ah, crap. I could have told the Callie story. That one was epic. Heck yeah. She's pretty good, too. I think that's a story for another day. As we have a much larger topic to tackle here this week, assessing skill levels. Mm-hmm. This is a pretty broad subject, but it's something we wanted to break down into some kind of more usable chunks. Because... It's something that a lot of players don't necessarily think about, but it's actually very important to your improvement as a player. So, I mean, let's let's ask the really obvious question. Why do you want to improve as a player? What, why does it matter how good you are? For me, it was personal frustration. I hated losing every single dang game I played when I was starting to play. Sure, that's a good reason. Josh, what's what, what do you have an answer? I think everyone has their own motivations as to why they're, you know, wanting to push themselves further. For me, it's always been deep down, whether how much I want to admit it or not, I, I draw some level of moral self-worth at the end of the day. You know, I I judge myself on how well I'm able to do, and it's almost to the point where I push myself to go to larger events is to be able to test myself at a, at a higher metal, at a higher standard, yeah. push myself beyond my limits and see how much better I can do and keep growing. Sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, we care about this game. We attach a portion of our, our self-worth and self-assessment to how well we do at it. Or at least how we do we do in, in certain things, because there are obviously lots of different ways to be good at the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for people who do want to be competitive, that process of self-improvement means a lot. Yeah. It's, it's something that matters, and it, it can be a point of pride, like proving that you can do it. Or like Shaylin said, you know, it can you know be avoiding a bad experience. Like, it isn't fun to lose necessarily like most people prefer winning to losing at the end of the day yeah and especially if you're playing a lot of good players you may want to improve so that you can kind of stand on their level yeah feeling like you're not getting left behind yeah absolutely you know there's there's other reasons as well being part of a community of people is certainly a a big aspect of as well the social aspect is there yeah yeah there's a lot of reasons to want to improve at the game and to to find reasons to become better at the game but part of that is just like knowing like why do you want to do this yeah that's a good question because this episode's all about asking yourself the right questions yes. so that you can assess yourself correctly so we're going to start with what's my motivation right that's the first thing you have to start with i think that you you need to know why you're doing it because that's going to answer how you want to go about it, and how far you want to go. Because, let's also be clear here, most people probably have the capability to take themselves all the way to the top of this game if they want to. Mm-hmm. But that requires a lot of work, a lot of time, and a lot of money. And you may have very good reasons you don't want to invest that much time, effort, and money into those things. Knowing where it is you want to go to is going to answer, like, what you want to do. If you're not interested in winning the ITC, then you don't necessarily need to push yourself to go to LVO if it's a 2,000 or 4,000 or 8,000 mile flight for you. Mm -hmm. 
So know what your goal is and why you want to get to that goal and what you're willing to invest into that. And those may change. Um, as you get to higher levels of the game, you may decide, like, oh, I want to keep going. I can keep climbing this mountain. Keep pushing. Or you may get to a level and say, you know, this is too much work for me. I put I put the effort in and I went to all these tournaments, but I'm not getting out of what I want to. I need to scale it back a little bit. Yeah. Kind of on that note, when you look at that, there's your goals are obviously affected by things like that. But there's also like your skills are as well, because there's a lot of skills you need to use to play this game. Yes. And I, for example, am kind of the epitome of an unbalanced character sheet if we're going to do a D&D metaphor here. And I'm really good at certain things, and I'm really bad at other things. And I know that. Yeah. We're going to talk about that a lot later. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, I think, a really big component of this. Being good at Warhammer is an aggregate of a lot of other skills. Mm -hmm. It is not just a single thing you do. Oh, yeah. It comes from 30 or 40 or 60 or 100, however many you want to break it into, uh, sub-skills that each have their own sub-components. And like most things, you are probably good at some of them and bad at others. And recognizing that is going to be part of your journey. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I think we really need to preface this with, and that really is starting to get into the topic itself, is honesty. Oh, yeah. And especially honesty with yourself. Yeah. Here we're not talking about not lying to opponents or remembering rules right or any of that. That's a whole other topic. What we're talking about here is being able to look at yourself and your own games and your play and honestly and objectively say, how good am I really? Mm -hmm. Because every time you tell yourself that you should be better than this or that, you know, I would have if not for, that's only going to stand in your way. Mm-hmm. You need to be able to look at this through a clear lens and say, where am I really? Because ego is one of the biggest impediments to getting good at this game. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the biggest hurdles you're going to have to cover is, is getting out of your own way. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And let's be fair, that's a really hard thing to do as a human being. You are designed to be full of ego, but learning to, to set that aside is kind of part of the, the, the process of growth and maturation, in not just Warhammer, but as being a person in general. Mm -hmm. So that can be another reason to practice these skills, is the, they can be a path to growth as a person, not just as a gamer. Mm -hmm. With that kind of out of the way, the way I kind of mentally map players that I'd like to put the two, to the two of you and to our listeners... And sort of go through what I would call like six tiers of, of growth as a Warhammer player. Because mm -hmm. I think these are a fairly objective in the sense of measurable way of looking at players and kind of assessing where they are on the skill levels. Mm -hmm. We will also start this off with that there is going to be a sort of level zero, which is not on this scale. Mm -hmm. Because there are a lot of people who are not competitive players just are not part of this whole measurement thing. They don't, they're not interested in learning these skills or going for this sort of thing. Uh, that's not a knock against them. That's just not what they want. Yeah, we're a competitive-focused podcast, but that is not for everyone. Some people really do just, like, they want to go to the tournament to have the social experience, and just that. Yes. Yeah, exactly. This is not an attempt to rank those players, because there are some very, very good casual players... And this is in, in no way designed to attempt to assess them. This is, again, focused on competitive, as Shaylin says. Mm -hmm. 
the six levels I kind of relate to the the types of tournaments that you see and how players tend to do at those tournaments because I think that at the end of the day you have to assess players based on their performance because that is the only measurable number we can get. You can't go into someone's brain and measure how good they are at the movement phase, but you can say they consistently do this well at tournaments. Yeah. And that's why I've, I kind of based this metric off of performance at tournaments. A lot of people will say that, like, well, that's not a perfect measurement. No, it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's biased. It is affected by a lot of other factors. It is a, a very imperfect measurement, but welcome to the world. Everything's imperfect. Mm-hmm. Um one to six on these, starting at the bottom and working up towards the top. At the at the very most basic level, you have people who attend RTTs and have a shot at winning them. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar, may not have heard the term before, RTT is Rogue Trader Tournaments. They're small local events, usually somewhere between 8 and 15 players, maybe a little bit bigger than that, but not by much. Uh, one day, three round kind of things. Specifically one day events. Yes. yes, they're one day and they're less than five rounds. That is the ITC definition of them. Yep, and being that the ITC is kind of the uh, organization that is defining the U.S. tournament meta, at least, that is a pretty good uh, standard of measurement to look at things by. So your your level one players here, your your first tier players, are people who are attempting to be competitive and may have a shot at winning an RTT, but are not doing so on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Your tier two players are folks who can usually win RTTs. Yes. I would argue within your meta, there's the group of people who almost always win. You know who they are. Yes. You might be one of them. Those are at least level two people. Mm-hmm. They're locally known players, probably at their individual store, maybe at a nearby store or two. Mm-hmm. Uh, since they probably travel around if they have enough experience to be that good. Mm-hmm. Your tier three players is folks who are not just going to GTs, because probably a lot of tier one and two players go to GTs as well, Mm -hmm. but are going to GTs and have that status of being in the running for winning it. That when you see their list at a GT, it is not just their one more player, but they have one of the stronger lists there and probably have come in top four at GTs in the past and maybe even have a shot at winning this one. Yes. Uh, These are people that within kind of the expanded meta, these are like kind of the one day drive from yourself. You know who these people are. They show up, they're like, yeah, it's going to be one of those X number of people. There might be a lot of these people in your area. Yeah, your exact percentages are obviously going to vary a lot. But these are people that when you when you draw their name in, you know, round two or three of a tournament, you know that you are in for a game. Yes. The tier above that is folks who are going to win most GTs. This is the handful of people in probably your state or maybe sort of a you know, slightly larger area that when you roll up to a tournament, and they are one of the something like three to six people who are most likely to win that GT. Yeah. Uh, pretty much everyone in the area probably is at least passingly aware of who they are. Mm-hmm. And they have won multiple GTs in the past, probably multiple GTs that year, and are racking up ITC points to the point where they are they are outranking most other people in their region. 
Yes, these are the people when we do a hot take episode that when they are out of the running, we mention their names specifically. Yes. That's kind of the caliber we're starting to talk about there. Mm-hmm. Tier 5 is where you start getting into the real names. These are people who are in the running to win major events. And we say majors, we mean real majors, like maybe a two-day, but often, in most cases, a three-day, at least six rounds, 70, 80, 90, 100 players. The big tournaments. Often referred to as Opens. Yes. These are also folks who are known not just in their region, but across tournaments as a whole, because they probably are traveling outside of their region to other tournaments. Mm-hmm. There just aren't enough majors in any one area to support this sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, this is someone whose name you have probably seen in the top four lists from something like a BAO or something like that, or someone who is consistently at the top of their ranking in the faction standings. Yes. People who are traveling quite a bit of distance now. Yes. These are people who get on airplanes on a regular basis or drive absurd numbers of days in his car. Car for several days. Yes. Poke, poke, nudge, nudge. And last but not least, we of course have your tier sixes. These are people who are specifically like the names who win GTs. There are what, maybe a dozen, two dozen tops of them in the world at this point. Yeah. These are people who are known to everyone in the competitive community. You have at least heard their name, even if you may not recognize their face. Folks who have won the ITC as a whole, or won some of the, you know, 150, 250, 350 player tournaments. Yes. The very, very top tier. Yes. As you kind of work your way down the tiers leading up to that, the numbers get exponentially larger. There are maybe two dozen tier sixes. There are probably a hundred or two hundred tier fives. Yeah. And probably five to twenty times that in fours and threes and so on as you work your way down. Yes. Interestingly, the tier ones are the only one that we have a distinct number on. Uh, There's about 10,000 of them. Uh, We know that because there were about 10,000 people who went to ITC events last year. That provides a pretty definable number of Tier 1 players. Mm -hmm. This kind of spells out the different grades of players. And you can probably tell where you personally are on that list just by sort of looking at how many tournaments have I won? How well have I done? Mm -hmm. And again, this is where honesty comes in. Because if you're saying to yourself, well, I almost won that tournament and i know i only went three and two but i could have won both those games well you could have won any game you played but that doesn't mean you necessarily were going to yeah but you need to look at that and like how many gts have i won not how many g's could you win how many have you won because if you went to 10 events last year and you almost won nine of them well that means you didn't win nine events and Mm. (laughs) i don't mean to come down too hard but almost only counts with horseshoes and hand grenades (laughs) you can almost win a lot of things and still does not get you any itc points for them yes and that said if you're someone who finds yourself the top end of a tournament like you're at the top tables in the final round consistently you're about to level up Sure. And that can be really cool, too. We have broken this into six distinct boxes. They're not real. It is a gradation, like everything else. It's a Uh, spectrum. Yes. 
like Shailene says, if you are consistently coming in top four, top two of tournaments, you're there. Then that does count for a lot. That shows that you are at the top end of your particular box, uh, and maybe moving into the next one, depending on exactly how you wanted to find that. These are kind of arbitrary and not particularly explicit uh, boxes to put people into, uh, but they're useful categorizations that can kind of talk about, like, generally speaking, how well are you doing and where does that put you on this spectrum of players? Yes. Um, it's also important to remember who else you are playing against when you're thinking about these. All of those folks who live out east where Nick Notavati and a bunch of the really good players over on Beast Coast and some of these other teams are... They have a much harder time at their local RTTs if Nick and three of his teammates show up. If there are only nine players of them, but, you know, Nick is one of those players and you win the RTT, that means something. Yeah. Yeah, it does. I didn't realize this until I started traveling away. When I started playing, I was playing in a relatively competitive maiden and had no idea. And I was like, huh, I'm actually winning games. Weird. Yes. If you are playing a bunch of, you know, tier 3 or 4 players in your local RTTs, and you go to a GT where it's mostly tier 1s and tier 2s, it's going to feel kind of weird to you. <laughs> the other thing that we kind of touched on real briefly is how close are you coming to winning these? Because this is another really good assessment. Mm -hmm. um, something that uh, my friends over in Chapter Tactics came up with is TWIP, meaning Tournaments in Winning Position. It's essentially, how close did you get to actually winning the tournament? Did you go at a, say, five-round tournament, did you go four rounds undefeated and lose your last game? Because that's a really different animal than losing your first game and then winning four more. Very true. Two different things. Yes. And who did you lose to? Because if you go to, yes. like, a five-round event and the only person you lost to was Nick Nadavati, that's very different than... If you lost to Joe Schmo, who you've never met before, that just showed up for his first tournament. Absolutely. Uh, we saw this at LVO. A bunch of players got, a bunch of very good players got knocked out in the early rounds because they were paired up against other very good players. And yeah, they only went 5-1 and one and didn't make it into the finals. But if the only person you lost to is the guy who won the tournament, but you lost to him round one, okay, well, you know that's actually pretty good but if you beat four schmucks and then lost to the guy who won the tournament that's good but i would say it's pretty equivalent to that round one loss mm -hmm. yes so understand the qualities of your losses exactly and the qualities of your wins yeah yes and again this comes back to around to being objective you have every interest when you're talking to your friends of playing up like, yeah, he actually was really doing pretty well with his one repulsor and 35 Primaris Marines and the the Imperial Guard running nothing but Chimeras mm -hmm. and <laughs> the single Forge World Knight that's one of the bad ones. <laughs> but it doesn't help you when you grow as a player if you sort of count that just as good as you do when you played the guy with the Yanari double spear army who flattened everyone else in the tournament and you lost 2931. Mm -hmm. You need to be able to step back from your sort of place as a player and say, how, how well did I really do? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if I personally get 20 plus points in a matchup that I know is bad for me, like this is a hard matchup, that's not a terrible loss for me personally. Sure. Being able to see how close you were to winning a game for real. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Because the score sometimes is a good measure of that and sometimes is not. I've seen games that were, you know, 39 to 16 that were actually really close games. So the last thing that we had talked about a little bit before the show and I think is really important to assessing yourself as players, recognizing mistakes. Uh, and this is something that Shailene has brought up a couple of times, but I think is is very worth going into a little bit. Yeah, there's three different parts to mistakes. One is recognizing them. So there's the sort of growth player everyone gets initially where it's like starting to realize you are making mistakes. And as you continue to grow, you'll see different levels of mistakes. Like, oh, crap, I made a giant tactical mistake or I made a deployment mistake and now I'm paying for it. Right, because recognizing like, you know, oh, I should have shot at a different unit is different from my plan never should have been shooting from the start. Yes. And then there's the kind of the amount of them, because you do, the amount of the types of mistakes will change, and theoretically basic mechanical mistakes just stop happening at some point. Hopefully you're, you're reducing the, the amount of a specific mistake you're making. Yes, yes that, that's what training and, like, getting better is all about, is reducing certain amounts. And then takebacks is a concept is how frequently are you needing to use those and addressing them when you are playing because one way to grow is to stop using them which encourages you to stop needing to use them yeah it kind of in incentivizes you to not keep making the mistake because if you keep doing like oops i forgot my psychic phase again you might have to go back you never get that disincentive to be like oh well i guess i missed my psychic phase done that as a great night player yeah first time you lose a tournament because you don't ask your opponent if you can take it back. Because that's one of the big ones is I know a lot of players that are very uh, adamant about not even asking. My last round opponent at um, Dallas Open, uh, Will Ivey. Oh, yeah. Great guy. Amazing game. One of the things even in the game when we played, there was a few times where he even like he even commented. He's like, you know, because I noticed he'd made a few, uh, like he made a couple little slip ups here and there. But he didn't say anything about it. And I was just like, okay, I just kind of let it go. And we were talking later and he's like, yeah, I just, I don't even want to ask to take it back. And I can kind of see where he's coming from on that because he, he doesn't want to put his opponent into the position of kind of, well, now if you say no, you're a jerk. Right. You know, he doesn't want to put his opponent in that situation. And it also, he even said it helps him as a player get better to not make those mistakes in the future. He's like, well, if I lose a game because I screwed that up, mm -hmm. I guarantee you, I'm not going to forget that again. That can be a big way to kind of incentivize yourself to learn the from your mistakes and like josh says the, the first time you lose a tournament because of something like that it will stick in your minds yes mm -hmm. and the other thing is i use take backs in kind of practice soft games in the more of well let's revisit a what if is a great sure. way to use take backs to kind of go well did i need a take back here so right. you can learn was, that. Was that the right call overall? I, I do that with a number of my practice opponents as well. Shaylin as well as other people. Because that can be... Revisiting those kind of what-if scenarios can be very useful for you to learn whether that was a good idea, how that might have played out, etc. Yeah. The whole thing I do when I lose a game is, is I go, I made mistakes. What were they? I challenge myself to find them. Yes. And that is really the key lesson about mistakes, is not that you need to avoid them, but that you need to learn from them and recognize them. Because as you get better as a player, you won't stop making mistakes. What you will do is recognize different kinds of mistakes, kind of like we mentioned earlier. That 
it won't be any more like, oh man, if only I had sent my second Terminator unit in, then I could have won that. But then you'll take a step back and say, you know, those Terminators sucked up a lot of my list. Maybe if I'd been running something else, I would have done better. And taking that sort of from one level up to a higher one is where you will still keep making mistakes and still keep recognizing new mistakes. Mm-hmm. But you're making, you're recognizing the mistakes that you as a previous player may never have even understood as a mistake. Yes. Like going, oh, I didn't saturate that threat well enough. Huh. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of mistakes, I do believe I hear our quartermaster calling who us. I'm not sure which one of you it was that painted the entire inside of her quarters red, but it clearly wasn't me, and I will maintain that position all the way through our drill practice. <laughs> Guy at the hardware store, it was said it was crimson, not red. Ooh, Ooh. I wouldn't tell her that. <laughs> We should get going for a very brief announcement section here, and then we will catch you in the second half of the episode as we talk some more about improving your Warhammer skills. Wargamers, perhaps you have an army that you've always been wanting to collect, but just don't have all the cash flow you'd like to get all the models brand spanking new from Games Workshop Direct. Or maybe you've got an army you just don't have space in your life to love as much as it really deserves. Well, let me tell you about Mindtaker Miniatures. At Mindtaker.org, you can contact the buyer and sell your miniatures for used ones that are perfectly good and fun for everybody. They're Northwest Area Gamers. If you're looking for a major ITC event happening in the later end of the year here, think about Stumptown Stomp. It's a charity event, and at only $55, the majority of which does go to charity, you can get in for two full days of gaming on November 16th and 17th, and it comes with a potluck lunch on the first day of the event. There are a variety of prizes, raffled as well as awarded, for both painting, sportsmanship, overall, and generalship. So come on down to Guardian Games and give it a spin. And we are back. Josh, I think I would now describe your face as... Perhaps crimson rather than red. Would you would you agree with that assessment? It hurt a lot. Yeah, uh, maybe you have learned from that mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. That was clever. I yeah yeah that's that's good huh? I've been practicing that one all week. I had to scrub your walls, jerk. <laughs> that was your mistake. <laughs> I always so, promised myself I would never clean up the blood. I'm bad at it. <laughs> so, 
I think this is a good point to look at some of the more specific aspects of what we've been talking about. Uh, earlier, we called out that there are a lot of skills in learning to play Warhammer. Mm-hmm. And I think something that is very useful to break down and kind of give some more specifics on is what are those skills? Josh, why don't you start us off? What would you call out as some of the basic skills of Warhammer? Well, there's a couple really big ones, obviously, and some of them are a little bit more knowledge-intensive or practice-intensive, but uh, obviously one of the big ones, a big one for me as well, is Math Hammer. Mm -hmm. And I know that word gets tossed around a lot, both on the internet and in conversation. Math Hammer, uh, or, you know, assessment, the ability to look at the table, look at, I'm moving this unit up here, I'm going to shoot that unit over there. How many wounds can I actually expect to do? You know, I have this many shots, I'm going to hit with this value, I'm going to wound with this, and that's how many saves they're going to make. You know, being able to quickly look at the numbers and say, is this a valuable exchange? Is this worth me moving these guys up and shooting that? Or would it be better to go over here and do this or, or shoot that over there and maybe claim this objective or whatever? So the ability to, to look at the numbers and look at the statistics, that's huge. Mm-hmm. The other half of that that uh, you mentioned is the assessment, is this worth it? Yes. Is a very important part of that. Because a lot of people say, it's like, well, math hammer's not everything. And they're right, it's not. But the ability to take those numbers and say, what does that mean for the game? Mm -hmm. Is the other half of that. We've talked about assessment and risk assessment. And like, is this this risky play worth it? It's a 20% chance. And if it works, I win the game. Should I do it? Yeah. Um, And... The reality is that you can't answer that question in a vacuum. Context. You have to know, like, what are my chances of winning the game otherwise, and and everything else. So understanding both the math hammer and the context around it. Yeah. Yes. Sometimes the risk is knowing what the failure points are in that risk as well. Because it's like, well, if I do this, I have a 20% shot at winning the game, but what if I don't do that? Right. Do I walk away with a 60% chance of still being in the game, even though I failed my my risky play? Exactly. In that case, I might go for it. Yes. In that respect, there are a lot of ways that you can improve that. There, We've linked them in the past. Um, We'll probably put up some links again in the future, maybe with this episode. Mm -hmm. There are tools out there that will calculate the numbers for you. Yep. And that's an okay crutch to lean on early on. I would say that you need to be able to at least understand where that math comes from. Now, you don't need to be Brandon Grant where you are crunching those numbers on the fly and saying, all right, I shoot my 10 guardsmen and a demon prince. What are my chances of doing three wounds to him? You don't need to be able to do that on that level, at least until you get up to being a Brandon Grant. Mm Mm-hmm. But you do need to be able to understand is like, okay, I've got 10 guardsmen. You should have at least an intuitive assessment of what you can reasonably expect from that. Because I see players who do that and like, oh, I should have killed that demon prince. Yeah, no. No, no, you shouldn't. Were you a Grey Knight smiting it? Yes. And there's a lot of components to that, that there are many different kinds of math in this game. Shooting and assault and psychic are all going to be very different math. Oh, yeah. Um, and movement has its own math as well. It's not really based on probability. It's a little more linear, but you need to be able to look at the table and, and guess things like, okay, I'm 20 inches away. The game ends on turn six. I need to start moving. Mm-hmm. I'm not there yet. I need to get to where I have to be. Yes. All of that kind of falls into that one really big skill there. Mm-hmm. So Trick, uh, underestimate yeah. things. 
Yes. That's to compensate for your ego. Yes, we talked about this in some of our other episodes, so definitely go back and check those out. (laughs) And that that also directly leads into another major skill that is useful in Warhammer, and that's target priority. And that's something we've talked about. Oh, yeah. We've had an episode about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have an entire episode on it, and, and it is. It's huge. Because part of that ability to assess and look at the math hammer and look at the numbers is to make good selections for target priority. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the way my elite army plays is all about finding the failure points in your opponent's army. So that's like, what are their crutch units? Yes, you need to know what is important before you determine what it is you have to destroy and what tools you use to destroy it. Mm-hmm. That's an incredibly important skill, that if you don't understand that, you're going to do really poor in the shooting phase. Uh-huh. Another one that I think is kind of easy to forget about is reading opponents and understanding what their game is. This can be some of the, like the like poker-style kind of like actually reading them. I um, don't play that game at all. A lot of people don't, and it's not as important as Warhammer is, because Warhammer is all open information, which is distinct from a game like Magic or Poker or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but even in that case, most people have a plan that they build. It's like, okay, I'm going to deploy these units here, and I'm going to shoot at this thing, and I'm going to move on to this objective. And if you know what that plan is in advance, if you can look at your opponent's army and know who your opponent is and say, this is how they're going to play out their game, that puts you one step ahead of them. And that can be really, really important because it means you're being proactive rather than reactive. Playing ahead a turn or two? Yes, very much like that, in fact, because that leaves them playing a turn or two behind you. Mm-hmm. I got this one. Okay. Um, mindfulness, which is your ability to keep yourself centered when playing. Yes. Because there's plenty of things that can tilt you out um, or distract you or whatever, and keep keeping yourself focused, kind of like the, the Reese narrow in, like playing the mission and staying on task that he yeah. does that's really remarkable to watch. And this is one of these skills that comes from outside of Warhammer, but is useful within it. Like, mindfulness is something that a lot of people can use in their lives anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's specifically in the context of Warhammer, that ability to keep on your game in spite of other factors is very big. Because it's very easy to get tilted by bad die rolls or by a player that you don't like. Or just by the stress of a tournament. Tournaments are very stressful environments, especially if you're playing at the top tables. You might have a whole bunch of people watching you. Mm-hmm. You might have an intense rules argument over something that you and your opponent legitimately disagree over. It's not just like a personality issue, but just you have very different interpretations of a rule. And once that argument is finished and the judge has made a ruling or you've come to some other conclusion, mm-hmm. you need to get right back on your game and keep playing. Yeah. And there can be, like, really simple direction disruptions like drunken casual player crashes into you. Yep. There's a lot of things that can put you off your game if you let them. Mm-hmm. And being able to control that internal environment is very big to doing well at tournaments. Yes. Josh, what else do you got? Well, a big one for me and something I've, I've dealt with more recently is both speed. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and that's more in-game, in-game speed I'm, I'm referencing. Not just with the clock, although the clock is becoming a very prominent feature in a lot of games now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But just 
your speed in the game. It's something that a lot of people don't realize is a thing, especially when they just start getting into competitive 40k. Oh yeah. They realize that you know I need to play faster, or I need to I need to actually be able to get through my game in a reasonable amount of time, and that's a major element that a lot of people don't consider. And then another big one is the endurance of it. I joke a lot about how you know physically demanding the playing Warhammer is, mm-hmm. but it's it's more in the fact that it's mentally and there's the physical exhaustion. I mean, you're you're standing, you're hunched over a table the better part of twelve hours in a day. Mm-hmm. It can wear on you, but more more so the mental drain. Uh, the it's mentally exhausting to play that much Warhammer at that high of a caliber and just pushing yourself mentally for such a long period of time it can drain you really hard it can you're making a lot of very difficult decisions and and considering dozens or hundreds of factors in each of them Mm -hmm. and this is why practice games are very important and why tournament experience is very important because you need to have that sort of basis of practice in order to be able to push through for those of you who've never really looked into it Mental endurance and willpower are not just sort of like vague concepts. They are very literal physical things. Oh, I have walked into a game where my opponent's like hunched over, his back's hurting that him in ways he can't describe, and I'm like, uh, do you want me to massage your back and <laughs> try to help you there? Because I'm used to lower back pain as a woman. All right. Sure. It absolutely is a big component. If you come into game three or, God forbid, game four of a day... Mm-hmm. You are not going to be as fresh and as ready to play as you were at the very beginning of that game. Yeah. Um, that is a big component, and it's not, I mean, it is the cumulative stress and other factors that we've talked about, but it's also just the fatigue and everything else and knowing how to play through that. That is absolutely huge at a tournament. Yeah, and there's ways you can physically and mentally train yourself. There's lots of tricks, and we'll have an entire episode on that. Oh, for sure. Shaylin has more tricks about this than anything else in the universe. It's it's something that you have a lot of practice with that you are very good at. Yes. So, one that I think is very important is the technical side of things, the execution. Yeah. Just because you know something doesn't mean you can necessarily do it. And this plays a little bit into, like, speed, like Josh was talking about. Mm-hmm. But it, it's also just sort of the minutia of when you make your movement with that horde unit. Do you actually spread them all to two inches, or do you compact them in? Mm-hmm. Do you know to sort of tuck that guy out of line of sight just by habits? It's all of these little, little things that cumulatively over the course of the game make a big difference. Because, you know, a lot of times it may not, but then you get to the turn, it's like, oh, they charged into you, but you pulled casualties and now you're out of combat. Mm-hmm. And that means that you don't have to fall back, which means you get to shoot that turn. Mm-hmm. And that's a pretty big difference right there. Yes. Um, there are lots of these little things, the physical movement of models, the knowledge of rules, minutia, and stuff like that, that has a significant effect on the game. Oh, yeah. Speaking of that, just general game knowledge. That's something yes. I'm clearly working on right now, is just sure. how well do you know factions you don't play? Well, and your own faction as well. Most people sort of know their faction. A lot of people don't actually know everything about their army. A lot of codices have quite a few units and quite a few stratagems and a lot of special rules in them. Do you know them all or do you just kind of think you know them? Yes. Yeah, exactly. 
And then how much do you know about other factions and all the other units? Because maybe you know, like, oh, sure, I know what a Knight Castellan does. Uh, and that's that's great. Probably you have a decent idea, but do you know what its leadership value is? Mm-hmm. And do you know what its secondary armament is? And which of those can be switched out and for how many points and all this kind of little stuff? It's little factors like this that can make a big difference when it comes to a number of different things, either in the game or outside of the game. And back to the night listing episode, this is why you need to go explore those corner cases and stuff, because that will give you better dominance of knowledge. Yes. Yes you haven't done the reading, you're not going to have the knowledge. And kind of on that subject, the last big one I would want to hit is list building. Mm -hmm. And this is something I've actually been talking about for a long time, since way back when I started playing competitively. List building is a skill unto itself, because it is not a game skill. You can be very good at the game and be very bad at list building, or vice versa. Mm -hmm. But writing a list... Is, is an art to itself, that you understanding the balance of points and what kind of units you need and how you can combine things together. And especially now with juggling different detachments and allies and all of that kind of stuff, uh, I'll often get someone who asks me to help them with a list and I'll just say, okay, first thing is you can break that into two battalions and a spearhead. And that gets you five command points right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. And they'll be like, oh one single move that changes nothing about their army and suddenly they have five free command points mm-hmm. um, and that and that sort of thing is very common in list building that you can often make these alterations and swaps that are neutral in terms of some things but have a huge benefit elsewhere yes yeah when we look at those skills Hopefully you can kind of get in and rank yourself on them. You can say that I am good at this and I am bad at this. And again, this comes back around to our honesty is you can say, well, how do I know I'm good at this? Uh-huh. And you may, hopefully you can cite some examples. Is like, look at things and it's like, well, all my friends ask me for help with lists and, you know, uh-huh. I can build this thing and I can do this. So I'm, I'm probably good at list building. But you might say, well, most of my games finish on turn four, so maybe I'm not the fastest player around. I am in physical agony at the end of every tournament. Maybe I need to do something about that. Yes. Yeah, right? You can hopefully point to direct evidence that indicates, at least within a reasonable amount of vagueness, how good you are at these given things. Mm -hmm. Uh, So from there, if you can sort of rank yourself on each of these skills then you can start looking at not just where am I, but where do I want to be, and what obstacles do I have in my way to get there. And some of these problems will be easier to solve than others. Sure. Some of them, like your mindfulness, might involve might be a very long-term solution that involves seeing a therapist about your ongoing problems with anxiety and depression. Sure. Or it may be, if you were at a lower level, it may just be having reminder cards. Yeah. Um, just, you know, a card that's like, here are the phases of the game, here are the things you need to do in those phases. That right. way you, you glance over to your card and you're like, okay, I am now done with movement, now it is time for psychic. That makes it a lot easier not to skip your psychic phase if you have that process. Yes. I had a, an opponent ask to make little tiny token cards for all his guns on his Castellan, so he wouldn't have to waste time figuring out where he put his targets. Absolutely. That's like a speed enhancer right there, is getting yourself a tool. A speed and mindfulness, yes. Mm -hmm. And tools are often critical to each of these. 
if you have access to Battlescribe and Best Coast Pairings, you are probably going to be able to do a lot better with improving your list building because you will have access to not just all of these lists that other people have written, but also a tool to quickly iterate your own lists. Exactly. Uh, you know, by the same token, uh, if you're trying to learn how to play quickly or try to improve your speed, not only will tools like movement trays and six-inch measuring sticks and all this kind of thing help you, but a chess clock. Play your games with a chess clock. That is a tool that will help you improve your speed. Yes. Um, tools and, and aids are going to be a big part of any of this. You don't have to do it on your own. There's no reason to make yourself. Yes. Uh, work smarter, not harder. Yes. Exactly. You do have to look at sort of like your, where your problem areas are. Mm -hmm. Not just in your, your individual skills, but also in the tools that you use to build those skills. Mm -hmm. um, the most common one I see, and perhaps the most frustrating one to me as a, a player and someone who does try to help people get better at the game, mm -hmm. is blaming your problems on luck. I lost a dice. Right. If only I had rolled a six, I would have had that game. Now, I will put a caveat on here. If you have a game where all of your, where like 90% of your rolls are twos or lowers, that's a different problem. Yes. And I would advise investing in something with gravity dice at that point, because well, that's dumb. <laughs> and here I will play devil's advocate. I have had games like that. Even in those games, I can look to the game and say, where did I make mistakes? Oh, yes. I still do that. In addition to that, I will just remark, unless the luck is, like, exceptionally, like, trash fire, it's never luck. Yes, and, and I would say... And even then, you made mistakes. You are correct, Sean. Absolutely. And, and, and that's why, you know, luck is a part of the game. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if you do roll well, you will do better. If you roll poorly, you will do worse. That's just, that's reality. But mm -hmm. you have no control over luck. It's never, it's not something you can do. And I'm sorry to all those people who have weird dice habits about how they like to set all their dice to sixes face up and arrange them a smiley face. That's not going to change your luck any. I'm, I'm sorry, it's just, that's not how the universe works. But you can control how you respond to luck and you can just take all that out of the equation. Uh, mm -hmm. good luck, bad luck, since you have no control over it, just remove it from the equation and say, what did I do wrong this game? How could I have done better? Yes. Because if you can't affect the luck, why are you worried about it? Mm-hmm. One, one of the things that I've actually, that I think would really help a lot of people would be to take these, you know, we, we've kind of listed off a lot of different skill aspects here. Uh -huh. And like you were saying, you want to you wanna give people really honestly self-reflect and rate themselves in these Honestly, an easy way to do it is just use like the, the grade system, right? You know, A, A, B through F or whatever. Oh, sure. And just go through and give yourself a rank. You know, hey, you know, I'm kind of a B on this. I'd love to get it to be an A. But down here, God, I'm, I'm like a D on time or speed. And maybe that's where I really need to focus. And and as you improve, you can improve that grade. It's almost like the people that have like those those credit monitoring websites or whatever. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. You can grade yourself on the different aspects that make you as a competitive player. And and you can definitely then start to look at where you're lacking and bring those numbers up and get those grades up mm -hmm. and kind of get yourself to be more of a well-rounded, well, you know, maybe I'm not an A player yet, but let's see if I can just get to be a solid C player where everything's at least a C and then start working on some other stuff from there or whatever. Yeah. It'll give you a little better view of it. And also, uh, if you're someone who you know you have a big ego and you're going to overestimate these numbers... Just say, all right, I grade myself here, and then I'm going to drop myself a letter grade on everything, and I'm going to pretend that's the real number. 
Yeah, I was gonna say if you if you do this assessment and you grade yourself like A A B A C A A A B, you need to go back and take a little bit more honest look at things because unless you're Brandon Grant, yeah, at that point you should be winning majors every other weekend. Exactly. So again, honesty is really key to this ability to assess yourself. You really need to look at where you are, not where you want to be. And there's no shame in admitting that there's things you're not good at. That doesn't reflect negatively on you as a person. That just means that this is this is a place where you can improve your skills and get better at things. It is potential for growth. Unrealized potential. This is what we use in the art world is the words unrealized potential. Go realize it. So let's talk a little bit about some of the the things that could be holding someone back outside of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, we already we already kind of mentioned luck. Um, hopefully, people were able to kind of get past this idea of like, well, I'm, I have bad luck, and no one has bad luck. You have the same luck everyone else has. That's what randomness is. There's a lot of things that can stand in your way, and understand that these are things that you can overcome. They may be problems, but you need to find a way to make, move past them. Because all the other good players out there have potentially these same obstacles, and they have found ways to move past them as well. Mm-hmm. One is finding time for practice games and getting them in, and yeah. making sure you have them at quality when you That's, do. That is a very big one. Um, you're not going to be a good player if you only play once a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just the reality of it. You need to be getting in more consistent games than that. Ideally, you are getting in at least one game a week. And if you really want to go good, if you want to hit tier four, five, and six, you're going to need more than one game a week. Yeah. You're going to need multiple games each week. And you also need to be playing a, a wide variety of opponents with different lists. Yes. And if you're like one of the big fish in your area, you're going to have to leave your area to find other fish bigger than you to bite at you. Absolutely. I see a lot of players brag about how, you know, well, I'm, I've am i won 42 games and only lost three with my list. And whenever I see someone say something like that, my first thought is usually, oh, you're not playing very good players. Because mm-hmm. if you're not losing a significant number of your games, you're not improving. Mm-hmm. That's just the reality of it. You need quote to be playing people better than you. Approximate quote from Brandon Grant after Boise Cup is, I won all my games. Crap. I guess I'm taking this list to BAO. I don't know where it's failing. Yes. You can learn a lot from losses, and hopefully you are if you're sort of following through on all of this. Um, but losses are extremely valuable. And if you're not ever losing games, you are either the perfect incarnation of Warhammer 40k in human form or you need to find some better players to play against. Like Shaylin said, travel outside your area, play games online, do something, help the players around you get better so that they beat you more often. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you need to lose games to get better. Yeah. And sometimes, like in my case, it's my army list. I know for a fact Grey Knights is a weight I should not be carrying if I want to get better. Sure. And this this follows back to your goals. Like, what are your goals? Uh, I don't think Shaylin has the expectation that she is going to win a major with Grey Knights. Uh, if I did that, that would be luck. Yes. Um, but that's that's where your goals come in. And if you if you say, like, well, my goal is to win a GT with this army, that might be a more reasonable expectation. And the list might not be holding you back from that. But even just outside of, you know, like, you've chained yourself to a faction that maybe doesn't do as well, maybe your list is just not optimized yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, it may be okay, but it could probably be better. And here's the secret from people who do, you know, spend a lot of time on lists, like me and Josh. Your list can always be better. Always. We are 
constantly tinkering with armies and you might look out over at some of these armies that uh, top players bring and say like wow that's so good I don't know how he came up with that and I guarantee you that guy when he got home from the tournament that he just won said all right didn't have enough yeah I didn't have enough of this in my army I was struggling to kill vehicles I need more board control how do I fit that all in how do we make it better? Mm -hmm. You need to be constantly working to improve your list because list writing really is a treadmill. Everyone else is moving forward too. If you're keeping the same list and sitting still, you're falling behind. Mm -hmm. Another one that kind of falls into that is tournament experience. Uh, we talked about practice games. Practice games are super important, but practice games are not the same as going to a tournament. No, and I've had times where it's just like, well... I've played more round threes than you have, and this is why I win the game with a weaker list, because I'm just better off here than you are. You're better at handling, say, the stresses of a tournament, or you know the mission format better, or you have better mental and physical endurance. Yeah. The raw tournament experience is can definitely be a factor, and if you are looking to get better and you feel like this is something that's holding you back, the answer is start looking for tournaments in your area. Uh, we're kind of in a golden age of Warhammer where, like, there are tournaments popping up everywhere. And I bet if you look around, you can probably find some tournaments in your area. At least RTTs, probably some GTs, maybe even a major or two. Mm -hmm. The ITC is great for this sort of thing because it, it builds a, a connected community. But you also have resources like Facebook... Uh, most local game stores will have some sort of announcement board that will kind of put up when tournaments and whatnot are happening. And if there aren't any tournaments happening in your area and you have nothing to go to, start one. Yep. I can tell you as a TO, I can run a tournament and play in it if it's an RTT. Yes, that's very possible if that's, if that's all you're looking for. You just want that basic tournament experience. You can run the tournament yourself. It's not that hard if you have access to BCP. So making sure you get that tournament experience. And as you were working your way up the levels, you know, you're not going to win GTs unless you go to GTs. And the only way you start leveling up is by practicing, and you got to start small and work your way up. Exactly. So, you know, maybe you, you've gotten to the point where, like, I feel pretty comfortable at GTs. Well, now you need to step outside that comfort zone and start going to majors. And that can be a big hurdle. It's like we talked about before. It's not a trivial investment to try and get better. It takes time, it takes money, it takes effort. And if you don't want to make that effort and you don't want to take that next step, that's fine. No one is going to blame you for that. But if you do want to, you don't have any option but to keep pushing forward. Yes. One of the other ones that I think that uh, we should talk about is meta-knowledge. Because it's not just about your list, it's about all the lists that other people bring as well. Yep. Because... None of this exists in a vacuum. Yep. If you prepared to beat knights and there are no knights in your local players, you prepared wrong. You might have built a really good list, but it sure didn't help you win the tournament that you actually went to rather than the tournament that could have existed. Mm -hmm. So knowing what it is that people are, look, are bringing and tracking all of that is another layer of things that you need to do. Again, this is where kind of monitoring the online information through BCP or through 40kstats.com or other information like that can or be... Or going around to tournaments in your greater area and starting yes, to meet all much. the people and knowing what armies they own and what they can hypothetically bring. Perhaps getting on a team, as we have discussed in the past. Ooh la la. Uh, this is where these things can overlap, because getting on a team will give you better players to play against. It will give you more knowledge of what the local meta is. It might make expanding your tournament thing more financially feasible. Absolutely. 
So there's a lot of ways these things connect together. Exactly. Do either of you have any final topics you think we need to hit before we sort of wrap this whole thing up? On my mind, I kind of feel like we really hit the broad spectrum on this one. There is a lot to talk about, and this is probably a topic we will revisit at some point. Mm -hmm. But we wanted to lay the groundwork here as kind of... If you are looking to get better, here's the steps that need to happen and here's what you need to learn. Part of it is assess yourself consistently, I would say. Go sure. back and look at yourself maybe every other month, mostly because that will give you a sense of, have I improved? And yeah. even if you're seeing little tiny steps, as my boyfriend says, as long as I don't stop moving, I'm okay. Yes. And hopefully you can look back at your performance in the past and see an improvement, a, a, a distinct change. I can certainly, for my own respect, I can say I can look back to how I did in 7th and 6th and 5th edition at tournaments and see a distinct change in how I've performed there. Am I at the level I want to be? Maybe not yet, but I've certainly come further than where I used to be. Mm -hmm. um, and I've seen my improvement as well. And Absolutely. Other things like that. It's like, well, yeah, no. And maybe one of these days you'll see me in a major, like, going 4-2 for once. Sure. That's been my goal. Well, let's kind of bow tie this off with the, the subject from the beginning. Goals are what this is all about. Mm -hmm. Whatever level of player it is you want to be, whatever skills you want to develop, you need to set that goal for yourself and understand what it is you want and why you want it. Because if you just feel like you should be better at Warhammer, that's really no use to you at all. But... If you say, I want to improve my list building, that is something concrete that you can take steps towards improving. Eating the biggest cookie little bite by little bite? Yes. This is exactly that again. One bite at a time. Exactly. Yeah. Josh cookies. <laughs> he does bake a fine cookie. Yes. So, if you have questions or comments about this, you want to talk to us about how you want to personally improve, or you want help with a list or something else, you can contact us through email, where we are in the finest hour at gmail.com. We, of course, also have a Facebook group where you can either message us or post to our Facebook page in the finest hour. And we have a Patreon for ourselves as well, if you would like a little bit more direct and consistent contact with us. For $5 a month, you not only get access to our private Facebook group, where we will post up all sorts of 40k-related content and ask questions and everything, but also we have a Discord where we will chat with all of our listeners, post up hobby progress and the tournaments we're going to and all that. And, as a newly added bonus feature, we are having our crosstalk episodes, where one or more of the hosts and one or more guests will hop in and chat about list building, lists they have been thinking about recently, or tournaments and the metagame as they see it currently, or just subjects that we find interesting. It's a little bit more casual format, as released as a bonus to our Patreon subscribers, mm -hmm. and the uh, everyone else will get access to them a little bit after they come out, but if you want that sort of thing in a timely fashion, then that nice little $5 donation per month will get you access to all that. You'll probably hear us talk about the FAQ at some point. Of course we will, because how could we not? Very likely. <laughs> so, upcoming events. I'm not sure where Josh is at, but my next big event is going to be Storm of Silence that I am hopefully going to be attending. It's still a little bit in the air because of the weird ticket situation. Uh, Josh, are you hitting BAO or...
we have one coming up on the uh, very first weekend of May, the Canadian Tabletop Championships in Ottawa. It's going to be a big one. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, that's going to be a big one. I know that Nick Nonavati and a bunch of the players from down that way are traveling up to that as well. Yep. There's going to be six different Canadian provinces and seven U.S. states represented. So yeah, that's the the first weekend in May, and May 18th and 19th is when Storm of Silence is hitting, mm -hmm. and then the weekend after that, the 24th through the 26th, is the Bay Area Open, which I will also be traveling down to. And uh, taking our new snazzy road recorder. Yes. Uh, probably going to do a little bit of interviews there, as I'm going to be hanging out with Jim Vassal, and uh, it'd be nice to talk to him a little bit, maybe see what his thoughts are about the tournament as well. Yeah. Then beyond that, as we get into like June and everything, there's a whole bunch more events coming up. I'll be traveling out to Hawaii and up to Washington and some other things. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to round the episode out by saying thanks to Dank Muse for providing our intro and intermission music. He's a pretty cool guy, gave all of that to us for free. And if you like some Funky Simpsons beats, then check him out on either YouTube or on SoundCloud where all of his stuff is available. I'd like to thank Rylan Woodrow, our amazing resident artist and just great general human being. Definitely want to throw a shout out to MindTakerMiniatures.org. They are one heck of a site. They do wicked used models. They buy and sell a lot of great products and their prices are phenomenal. Definitely recommend going and checking them out. MindTakerMiniatures.org. Yes. Well, we spoiled it a little bit already, but we're going to do some questions from our listeners here. All right. Replacing our previous features. So the first question we have is from Talon, who would like to ask us, in regards to the changes for the faction scores in ITC, how are you going to adapt? Soup it up as you were, or you go take monobook and get your teeth kicked in? I guess going two, three in a major or whatever. <laughs> so Shaylin, I think I think you're the first one to ask this one because you're the the one with a much more dedicated focus than the two of us. My adaptation right now is to keep on my track focus, which is the thing I promised myself this year is to take non-GK to RTTs and only take GT to majors and GTs, of which I'm going to attend exactly one this year, so I'm fine. I yes. will not be super depressed about it because I will only do this to myself once. <laughs> Well, I suppose that's that's unfortunate on another level, but yeah, it handles things. Josh, what about you? What do you what what's your feelings on the new faction stuff? Did the ITC change in faction directly affect my decision? No. A certain level of if you're trying to place well enough at competitive events, at a certain point it becomes less relevant to you. It's what is the best list I can take? If it happens to be pure faction, then it does. If it doesn't, it's not really something you're focusing your attention on. You're focusing first on making a good list, and if it happens to fill a gap, then it does. Yeah, that's that's kind of where I'm at as well. I am now competing for Best of Eldari rather than Best of Craft Worlds or Best of Ginari, but that doesn't really change things for me a whole lot. I'm not going to adjust my list to specifically aim for Best in Faction. I mean, it changes what my Assassin's list looks like, but that list was so stupid anyways that it's not really a problem. Oh, so God. Charlie asked us, what are your meta predictions for the post-April big FAQ? Not just the meta, but where do you think we're going to start seeing a lot of list changes, nuke stuff, because of the changes in the FAQ, as well as the ITC best in faction? You're going to see a downplay of, uh, you're going to see less of the flyer, the, you know, the, the six and seven dollar flyer list, and I think you are definitely going to see less popular versions of the Knight and Castellan builds. I'm not saying they're going to go away, but they are going to diminish. You're not going to see them as abundantly as you are right now. Julian, what do you think? Armies that are bad right now will still remain bad after the FAQ. They will not be salvaged in any way. That's probably pretty fair assessment. 
I'm a little bit with Josh. I think Knights are going to go downhill quite a bit. I am a lot less confident about Flyers getting nerfed. They may do something to them, but it may not be enough. We we will have to see here. Yeah, exactly. I, I do think the really big casualty will be Yanari. I think Yanari are going to fall right off the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I think that wraps up all our questions for the week. I hope everyone found these interesting and enjoyable. All right. Well, that wraps up our listener questions for the week. Uh, so, thank you everyone for listening. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode. And next week, you will have a very special episode where we have an interview with the TO as we go behind the scenes with the TO. So, I have been Tom Morgan. I've been Shailen Allen. And Josh Depp. Thanks for listening to Find Us Out.